Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. A lot of passion plays have Judas as this like pure criminal who's kind of like twisting his mustache or something, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. that's sort of like historically often like he's just in it for the money or something. And Sayers just wasn't satisfied with that. Yeah. She thought, I've got to do, I've really got to get my head around it. Like why, why would Jesus even have him as a disciple if he knew that Judas um, was, you know, just a pure baddie, you know, there had to be something about him. During the second world war, Dorothy Sayers, a novelist, a poet, the author of the Peter Whimsey Mysteries, and theological works like The Mind of the Maker, and also a dear friend of another literary chap of the time, C.S. Lewis, published a cycle of 12 plays for the BBC on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. These radio plays were criticized from the left as religious propaganda and from the right as blasphemous. And now, 80 years later, Catherine Ware has annotated, edited, and published a new edition of these plays. The book is called The Man Born to Be King, and she talks with me about it on Almost Good Catholics. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics, about religion and history and culture. I'm your host, Chris Odinitz, and I get to ask interesting people who've thought about the big questions to share their conclusions, to explain what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this format in relationship and dialogue and back and forth may help us approach the truth and have a really good time doing it. And should you want to take the conversation a step further, I invite you to please email almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Today, I have the pleasure to speak with Catherine Ware. She's the editor of the new Wade edition of Dorothy Sayers' The Man Born to be King, the book we're talking about today. It's a cycle of 12 plays based on the Gospels. Sayers wrote this in early 1940s as her native Britain was under attack by Germany. Sayers is best known for the Peter Whimsey Mysteries and also wrote theological and apologetic works, especially The Mind of the Maker. Catherine Ware has a Doctorate of Divinity from St. Andrews University in Scotland, And like Sayers, she has written many theological and apologetic works. Though I don't know about the murder mysteries. (laughs) She's the managing editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture. Welcome, Catherine, to Almost Good Catholics. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. The pleasure is mine. And I understand you have a a humorous connection to the title. I do. So I am a Catholic convert. And... um, when I saw your title, it reminded me of when I was going through RCIA and I remember saying to the priest like, Oh, I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever be a good Catholic. I think I'll only ever be a bad Catholic. Um, and he said, like the rest of us, don't worry. Amen. (laughs) Um, and I, I was heartened by that because, um, you know, I had been very involved, um, in parishes and actually working at an Anglican seminary before I became Catholic. And I felt like I had been a pretty good Anglican, but mm-hmm. here I was in a new tradition um, with, you know, a whole new catechism and a whole new, um, you know, series of traditions and a new liturgy. And I just felt like, I don't think I'll ever really wrap my head around it. Um, but that was such a, you know, comfort from the priest Absolutely. that he was like, it's okay. That's not what it's about. We're all learning how to do it as we go. No, amen. I feel the same way. And the title itself comes from my wife, who who is a Protestant. Uh, and she, when she was in college, she was in a um, a student group called, I think it's called the Navigators, but it's a Christian fellowship. Sure. And and their mentor there was making fun of those kids, those college undergraduates, and saying, "You guys are a barely Christian fellowship." And so it's <laughs> it's it's that it's that a good humored uh, joke that 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 she suggested. 
to me, and that's where I got Almost Good Catholics. <laughs> uh-huh. nice. So um, would you tell us uh, a bit about yourself and your work and how you found Dorothy Sayers and her work? Sure, absolutely. So you gave just a, a few of those connections. Um, there, I, f- I first encountered Sayers when I was doing a master's degree at Regent College back when I was still um, an Anglican. And uh, I just picked The Man Born to Be King off a book list. And my, my undergrad had been in theater. So my connection was with the, the plays, you know, as, as drama. And um, I loved the plays. And then that got me into you know, reading her mystery work. And then from, from there into some of her nonfiction. And, um, but I, I mean, what I love about her is that she's involved in so many different kinds of mm-hmm. genres, right? Mm-hmm. So she even started by writing poetry and then into mystery fiction, then into plays and um, speeches and in writing nonfiction. And then spent the whole last part of her life uh, working on Dante. So there's just so many different ways to get to know her. So some people just know one little part of her work and some people, you know, ooh, ooh, there's this whole other area I didn't know about. So that's what I love about her. She's into all kinds of things. So there's lots yeah. to learn. And it encourages me as a human being, you know, that like, ooh, there's still time. Mm-hmm. Still time to learn something new. Oh, most certainly. Yeah. And I found her first through her uh, mysteries, the Peter Whimsey Okay. mysteries yeah. uh back before we had children my wife and i would drive her drive places and i'd drive the car and she would read the read the books as we were going you know oh. camping or something like that and um that's oh, great that's our tradition and i just took whose body which is the first one off the shelf last uh-huh. weekend and started reading it to my 10 year old son and i realized that book is 100 years old <laughs> yes yeah. right exactly yeah. um and then later i learned that she had been close friends with cs lewis and jr tolkien and wrote a lot of um, theological stuff too. So uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, li- I can I can certainly say a little bit more about that. So yes, because I would say uh, she did not know J.R.R. Tolkien. Oh, um, but she did know C.S. Lewis, and she knew she knew Charles Williams, who was another inkling. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think she even ever met Tolkien, but um, but she certainly knew Charles Williams, and he he was very helpful in getting her into writing plays. And then because of Charles Williams, um, you know, because of that connection is how she got to know Lewis, it seems. And then um, when Charles Williams passed away, um, uh, Sayers and Lewis, you know, were the sort of the editors of a a book of essays in Charles Williams's honor. So then they got to know each other fairly well then in the sort of mid 40s. And then they stayed close writing friends. They only saw each other occasionally, but there are a lot of letters between Sayers and Lewis, and they're they're really enjoyable letters. So if any people are you know interested in that, it's really a treat because uh, they help each other with their writing. So they're commenting and asking questions on things that they're writing about, um, but also a lot of jokes. And Sayers loves to like write little comics, and they they joke about her like chickens and her cats. And I mean, it's just like <laughs> it's really fun. It's just very yeah. friendly, fun stuff. Absolutely. Um, and you quote her, one of her characters from the mystery series, Harriet Vane, about, you know, the importance of a job of, of work. And mm. so could you tell us about that connection and how Sayers took on this project, The Man Born to be King? Yeah. So um, as I said, uh, Charles Williams had recommended Sayers to write a play for the Canterbury Festival um, in 1937. And that became the play, The Zeal of Thy House. So that was really her first um, Christian play. She had co- co-written a play with a friend based on the Whimsy series, um, Busman's Honeymoon, which, so, which was first a play and then became, you know, was published as, as a novel form as well. I didn't know um, it had been a play. I only knew it as the yes, book. Yeah. Yes, it was originally a stage play. So that got her into it, but it was a, that kind of push from Charles Williams that, you know, connected her with the Canterbury Festival. So because of that, then... Um, there was actually uh, a, a critic in the, the magazine Punch that saw Zeal of Thy House and said that she was sort of playing fast and loose with theology mm-hmm. at the end of the play. And then she wrote a letter to the editor um, to defend herself um, and say, actually, what I was saying about um, the work of creation being threefold in sort of reflection of the Trinity um, is, is good theology. Um, and 
the amazing thing is that when we stick to the creeds, that's actually like that theology is so dramatic. We just don't realize it. Um, and what I've tried to do is to put that creedal theology on stage um, as the kind of backbone of, of the drama. And so she has this saying that the dogma is the drama. She has an essay um, of that name. Um, but that's the idea that like, if we really understood what it is that we're describing in things like the creeds, that we'd be blown away. We should be blown away. Um, and so, but this got her into then more of a, you know, writing on theological themes, apologetic themes, themes about women, things, themes about work. There's just a lot going on in, in her work in the late thirties there. Um, but since she had, she wrote one more play called um, The Devil to Pay for the Canterbury Festival another year. And then um, she was asked by the BBC to write a, a children's nativity play, hmm. which was called He That Should Come. And that was so successful in, um, that was Christmas of 1938, um, that the BBC oh, said, oh, maybe we could do like a whole series of plays. So she was asked to write a series of plays on the life of Christ. Mm -hmm. um, and so The Man Born to Be King is this ended up being 12 plays at when the first letters, it wasn't quite clear exactly how many plays it was going to be. Um, but she actually picks up right where she left off with he that should come. Um, Cause that was a nativity play. And then the first play in the man born to be King cycle um, is the, the wise men coming and appearing mm -hmm. to Herod and then coming to Bethlehem. And so she picks right up where she left off. Um, but it was because of that. You know, like, so this wasn't something that she just thought, Oh, I should write a series of plays on the life of Christ. It was actually commissioned mm -hmm. by the BBC. Um, and the head of religious broadcasting of the BBC, um, he actually said uh, his, you know, his goal, this is James Welch, his goal was to, um, you know, uh, bring the gospel to the heathen of this country, he said. <laughs> so he had a, a really evangelistic um, plan, which is something you might not see on the BBC today. Um, right. <laughs> but he, you know, he really wanted people, particularly children to understand the gospel story and encounter Christ on the radio. And so she accepted the challenge, but she felt like her job, um, you know, was not to focus on how can I make this play evangelistic or how can I create these moments where children will be, um, you know, encouraged to make a decision or, you know, something like this. She felt like her job was to create the best plays that she could using all her available tools. So, you know, of course the gospels, but she also credits some secondary sources. We know she used some commentaries and other um, biblical source material. And then, and Josephus, for instance, some historical mm -hmm. books about the historical background um, and a Greek New Testament. We know she was um, consulting that. So she's using all these different tools to make the best you know, theologically meaty plays, um, but also as good drama. Mm -hmm. um, so that was sort of her task. So it, the the intention from the BBC might have been evangelistic. Her job is to write the best plays because she knows that if she really presents Christ, uh, you know, truly and um, with the best theology, that it will be dramatic and people will encounter Christ. Um, and so... You know, kind of she she's she was big on you know whose whose job is what, yeah. Um, and so that was definitely her job, and she tried to do it to the best of her ability. Yeah, no, and so this is meant to be listened to, um, perhaps like reading Shakespeare. It's it's a delight to see the words right. on 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 the page, and I especially mm -hmm. um, you know rec recommend your edition here because you have so many annotations in the margins, and you write um, short essays for each chapter, and. It, um, very good introduction that helps people understand. But I also found it on YouTube. I think it was a 70s recording. And so I've, I've been having it going in the kitchen as I was cooking or, or washing up and my kids would come in and out and sort of listen for a bit. And um, so it's available yeah. to be listened to. Yes. So um, if I may yeah. <laughs> um, uh, say that. So what you are, I think, hearing is probably the 1967 BBC um, World Service recording. Um, that seems to be the one that that is available. I have seen those on YouTube, but honestly, they are they are um, disobeying copyright. Whoever has put oh. those up on YouTube, oh dear. so I I don't encourage that. But they are available through Audible, so you can get them through Amazon, um, and so it, they are wonderful recordings. Um, the only thing 
that I would say about them is that for the sake of time, they cut what were about 55 minute plays down to about 40 to 43 minutes. Most of them. That's true. So there are sometimes scenes cut or, um, you know, parts of scenes. Um, Some of my favorite parts are cut out because they think, oh, it's too long or, or sometimes it's too theological. Um, And that's too bad. I had it. I didn't even realize. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, it reminds me the idea of doing it of, I don't know if you ever saw the Franco Zeffirelli, uh, Jesus of Nazareth from 1980. That was a sort of a four-part miniseries with uh, Robert Powell as Jesus, and okay. um, uh, and so like that was a thing 40 years ago where the family mm-hmm. would sort of sit around and watch the gospel all collected into one narrative, not really clear what's coming from where. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a very beautiful thing. And of course, in the 40s, that would all be done by radio. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and the the thing also that we haven't mentioned yet is that there was, um, you know, there, there were issues. It wasn't clear that like, this was something everybody would appreciate. Yes. Um, you, you say, in, yes, it's safe. There's a lot of pushback and Jack, there was, yeah. yes, there was a controversy. Um, because, uh, from the time of the reformation up until just, um, in the early years of the 1900s, um, it was actually illegal for there be there to be, a representation of any member of the Holy Trinity is how it was stated um, on stage. And so it was not allowed. So Jesus couldn't be a character. So there could be Christian plays, but they would be perhaps told from the point of view of a disciple or um, nativity plays were, are, were and still are very popular in the UK because of this tradition that, you know, you could just have a doll play Jesus. There wasn't a human being who was impersonating. So, so to say, um, so no passion plays. Correct. That's wow. right. And when did yeah. that when did when did that stop? When did that So I'm trying to think of the exact date. I think it was like nineteen twelve or nineteen thirteen, wow. right before World War One. Um, but after this point, people still needed permission mm-hmm. to do that. So they could say, Well, we'd like to have this play at our, you know, our parish church, um, and have, you know, we'd like to do a passion play. And they say, Okay, well, let us see the script. And so then they would actually need permission. To do that. Otherwise, there were there would be workarounds like we'll have Jesus just be a voice from off stage, so there won't be an actual human being acting the part of Jesus, um, or we'll have a light on stage with the voice, so to kind of show where Jesus is. Um, and so, when Sayers was asked to write the plays, this is something that from the very first reply to James Welch um, at the BBC that she said, okay. If I'm going to say yes to this project, here are the things that I really want to be a part of it. It's sort of her conditions of saying yes. So the very first one was Jesus has to be a character. Hmm. So they were thinking, well, yeah. let's see, this is radio. It's probably okay. But honestly, they had not attempted that before in a BBC production. Wow. Um, the only thing that they had done, they had done a series also for the Children's Hour um, on the life of St. Paul. And so they did have, you know, Paul's conversion. And so there was, but there was just the voice of Christ saying exactly the words from the King James um, as part of that radio play. Um, But Sayers felt like he's got to be a real character and he has to be able to say, if I'm going to create this as a drama, he has to be able to say things beyond scripture. He has to at least be able to say good morning and, you know, (laughs) Um, these kinds of things, if I'm going to make a scene, because so much of what we have in the, particularly the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, is material that is kind of episodic. Mm-hmm. There aren't the kind of linking things. We just have the the speech or the, the parable, um, but not necessarily, you know, kind of how that scene unfolded. So as a dramatist, she needed to um, bring some of that in. Um, and so that was one of her conditions. And she also wanted um, her characters to speak everyday English uh, instead of just taking things right from the King James. And, um, and then uh, she really wanted to use local accents. That so was so that, interesting. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So the characters speak a variety of accents. There might be, you know, some of the disciples have a Northern accent, like they're from Galilee. Um, And some have more educated accents. Some have London accents. Um, She really wanted a variety so that um, people would feel like, oh, oh, this is like 
these are everyday people yeah. like us. And some of the rural figures sound a little Scottish or Irish or something like that. Yeah. You know, she didn't branch out too much into Scottish accents, but she, you know, she did say she wanted the Virgin Mary and Jesus to have a slight Irish twinge. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is very uh, interesting. Right. No, and I can, I can, I can sort of feel that. And I get first, you're like, "What's going on?" And then you quickly get get used to that. It's, um, yeah. Um, yeah. So, but that's that's really what she wanted. You know, she wanted people to not. She says this in her introduction. She didn't want her characters to feel like they were, you know, static characters stuck in stained glass. Mm-hmm. You know, as if they're they're all sort of propped there, just with their hands up, saying like. Oh, Jesus, work your miracle. Um, but no, they were real people who yeah. encountered Jesus in different ways at different times. They didn't necessarily have the whole story yeah. um, and had their own reasons for reacting the way they did. So, um, you know, the sort of everyday people is is one level, but then also you have the religious leaders like Caiaphas um, and Pilate. And, you know, yes. what are what are they thinking? How are they reacting? Uh, Caiaphas, especially, I think she does a great job um, characterizing because you really feel for him, you know, you don't, you don't have to like him, but you feel yeah. how, um, kind of stuck in the middle he is, you know, that, that, um, Very, he is, yeah. if, if there was a revolt of some kind, he and the Sanhedrin would be held responsible. And so you feel that, that he's trying to protect people by, you know, putting down different, uh, things that are happening. That's why he's worried about Jesus. It's not that he's like, you know, Jesus is going to take my place. He's like, no, he's going to ruin the peace that we have that's so <laughs> precious and, you know, on a tightrope. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... I can feel their um, their sort of refined education and mm. their status through their speech also. They so- sound a bit like Allegheny's or, um, yeah. you know, somebody, you know, somebody f- from, from, a, from a, a very good background, uh, unlike the, you know, coarse rural folk who follow Jesus. Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah. So when you're reading the plays, you can see sometimes she'll put in a few words that look, you know, a little more like dialect or hint at things like the disciple Matthew drops his H's. So she does, yes. you know, instead of happy, it's written apostrophe A P P Y. So you kind of get the sense of it, but um, mostly it comes through um, in the recordings with the, the choices by the different actors for different accents. But yeah, and so we are—we are, we are uh, you know—we are corporal beings. We're embodied spirits, and so we understand the gospel and everything of cre- creation through things we do. And so when I'm talking to my children about what I, how I think of this world and the cosmic world, I often use the analogy of Dungeons and Dragons, where we're playing roles. Or if I'm thinking mm. about my classroom, you know, and, and God's instructive purposes and how He is happy to see us fail and then pick us back up and show us a little more. And she's a writer and she has a very mm. interesting theology that you refer to uh, and that she explains in her book, The Mind of the Maker. And I wonder yes. if you would use, uh, spell out that theology for us. Sure, absolutely. Um, so The Mind of the Maker was published in 1941. So it was published just before... Um, these plays came out. So I, I use it in the introduction because it's, it kind of helps explain what she thought she was doing because the mind of the maker talks mm-hmm. about the artistic process and she likens it. Um, well, she calls it like the, the Trinity of, of the artist. Um, and it's, it's different from, it's not like a, an analogy of God as Trinity, but it's more like, this is what human beings do when they create. And it's, it's a reflection of God as Trinity, because since God is Trinity, it's sort of like, there's like this Trinitarian stamp on all of life, mm-hmm. including creative work. So, um, her sort of three parts of her, or yeah, three parts of her Trinity, yeah. um, are the idea. So that's like, uh, you know, someone who comes up with a great idea for a song or, a, um, a poem or a book and it's like oh I just have to write it but I can I can see all the pieces I, I want to take this theme or have this plot um, develop this thing and I I want it to have this form but it's still you know it's still in in the brain it's an idea and it needs to um, be enfleshed and so that process she calls the energy um, so I guess if we just take a step back so the idea mm-hmm. is like God who is outside of time God the Father outside of time 
And then Christ came in to time to show us who God is. And like that step, the, the artist, you know, brings the idea to life and works in time, you know, from day to day to, you know, sitting down at the computer, writing that novel or, you know, at work, at the piano, creating mm -hmm. the song. Um, you know, it's the actual in time work of it. And then the final step is called the power. And that's um, when, when it kind of has this ongoing life um, where you yourself can be the audience of the thing you've created, but other people can encounter it as well. And it has this ongoing life, just like the sustaining work of the Holy Spirit in us. So she likens those things to the Holy Trinity. And um, I just, it's a, it's a great um, analogy. And I think mm -hmm. about that a lot. Um, and if we apply it to the, the man born to be king. So like I mentioned that it was, the idea actually came from James Welch at the BBC. So he commissioned the plays, but then Sayers had those specific ideas. You know, Jesus has got to be a character, mm -hmm. everyday English. Um, and, and then, but the day-to-day -day writing process of actually, you know, opening her Bible and commentaries and, you know, figuring out how she's going to structure the scenes and what's going to come what, and how is she going to develop characterizations, you know, um, yeah. of the disciples of, you know, of Judas, particularly above Caiaphas of some of these, these characters that keep coming up, you know, how, how to create, you know, a believable different disciples of, you know, we, he, there's a lot of scenes where there's a lot of them all at once, because of yeah. course they were all together, but how do you differentiate them enough? as characters to um, make it an interesting bit of drama as well as representing different yeah. biblical scenes. No, that's, that's, that's very helpful. And this morning as I was um, uh, doing uh, the rosary, I was following along with Bishop Barron on his, mm -hmm. his uh, rosary. Today's Wednesday we're talking, so it's a uh, glorious mysteries. And mm -hmm. when he was um, on the, on the third mystery about the coming of the Holy spirit, he said like, well, the Holy spirit is, is, is only the relationship between the, the God the Father and God the Son, and is it really is spirit or breath? And I was just thinking, like, I'm gonna get to talk to you in a few hours about this, and it's uh, something that Dorothy Sayers said a while ago. And it's the, the back and forth between the relationship, perhaps. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I just as a theologian, I'd, yeah. I'd love to just be a little careful when we say it's only the relationship yeah. because we do say that the Holy Spirit is a person. Yeah. So if we only if we only describe the spirit as as being the love between the father and son, um, we we can you know shortchange the 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 personhood of yeah. the Holy Spirit. But um, but but the, in terms of relationship, that's a wonderful way to express that. Um, that's no, that's and, a very fair point, and I think he meant it that way. Though he did yeah. say that, but I think he meant it as you as you are as you are saying in that. You know, yeah, God is love, but God is a person. Right. Or it's three persons, three persons. Okay, so mm -hmm. let's talk about the characters because the, okay. uh, there were some really interesting editorial decisions uh, and some of the people who Dorothy Sayers has the liberty to flesh out a little more are people we get very, um, just the bare bones of them in the gospel themselves. And so some of my favorites were, were Proclus, the centurion, who appears throughout uh -huh. Jesus's life. And yep. she calls him... Um, in your in your introductory essay to I forget which of the plays, but you you explain how she saw him as a you know a, a faithful servant of the empire like a Tommy in India mm -hmm. in colonial India, and yeah. here he is a, a Roman in the in in um, Judea and how he was there at the birth and how he was there with Herod and how he was there at the crucifixion and how it was his servant who Jesus restored. Um, Lord, I'm not worthy to come. I'm not worthy that you'd enter under my roof. That that same fellow, right. and she put, mm -hmm. she she made a composite. Um, so you, what do you think about uh, Proclus? Yeah, well, so in her introduction, she um, talks about him and then someone like Baruch uh -huh. um, as tie rod characters. So when she's thinking about it in terms of drama. She needs a kind of structure that she can work with. So there has to be um, a kind of, you know, dramatic structure. Um, and so someone like Proclus, who is there at the beginning in the court of Herod and refuses to be uh, the one to go to Bethlehem to slaughter the, the innocent children mm -hmm. um, 
and then for him to return. Um, it, it's, you know, she knows that she's, you know, she's, she's creating drama. She's very clear that like, she's not just trying to do a, a you know, exact representation of what we have in, in the gospels. She's definitely doing a dramatized version of it. So she does feel free to, to make some of those dramatic choices. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think Proclus is interesting. As you say, in her notes, before some of the plays, she does liken the, the Roman kind of colonial presence to colonial India, which India was still part of the British Empire at that yeah. time. And, um, and that as a way to help her audience connect, you know, the yeah. Romans weren't just, you know, biblical characters, like yeah. this was a real empire. Um, and they were kind of the occupying force, just like the mm-hmm. you know, British uh, were occupying India at the time and, and ruling India. And so he, he might have had that same kind of, um, you know, benevolent interest. But we see in the scene where, um, why, you know, why he says, you know, you, uh, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. But he all, she, she puts in his mouth things like, you know, I understand about dedicated persons. In my, mm-hmm. you know, in our religion, we have this too, where people become unclean if they come into certain um, areas. And if you came to my house, you would see statues of the emperor and, and of our gods. And, it, you know, it wouldn't be appropriate. Just, just say the word. Yeah. And, um, my, my servant will be healed. So, um, that, I mean, that's, it just, this, these kinds of things that Sayers does to help give a kind of context and reality yeah. for her audience. And he appears again at the crucifixion and he's able to give right. sort of, um, special treatment to Mary and John to approach right. the cross. And he's, uh-huh. he's just like, he's in a position that he cannot change, but within the constraints of his position, he does everything as sympathetically and lovingly as as possible while still fulfilling his duty. Yes, that's yeah. right. So, um, you know, we, we don't know of any, you know, particular soldier named Proclus, but, uh, that's the name that yeah. Sayers yeah. gives him and, um, is just like the kind of person, you know, he's kind yeah. of a, a, not really a stock character. I mean, he's a pretty well fleshed out character, but you know, a type, um, that, her audience might be able to connect with be like, Oh yeah, I have an uncle who was, you know, he was an officer and in, mm-hmm. in the British army in India for a while. And I could see him interacting with local people that way. That yeah. Kind of you also uh, defend her decision to um, combine Mary Madeline and Mary, the sister of Lazarus. Well, um, well, I defend might be, uh, or you, uh, strong, you explain, you explain and, and you yes. explain its traditional roots and also how that only went out of fashion in the 20th century. Cause That's I was right. surprised. That surprised me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the Catholic world, um, they, those Mary Magdalene and Mary Bethany, um, were, were kind of liturgically assumed to be the same person and, and had one feast day. And in the, in the sixties is when, Mary Bethany was added to the Martha and Lazarus um, day. I, I believe yeah. that's, that's when that was. So it was traditional, um, you know, and Sarah's writing in the early forties, that was kind of the general thought. Um, but we do have a letter from her saying like, I don't care that biblical critics say that these are, you know, might be right. different people. Church tradition, church tradition has, has had them as one person. And, um, and it makes it too complicated. You know, I can't have all these Marys um, running around. I have to, you know, do something for the sake of drama. I can't have everyone named Mary. Yeah. Um, and so she sort of jokes about it, but she's also very aware that, you know, someone like St. Augustine or um, Pope Gregory the Great, both of them thought, yeah, they're probably the same person. And so she sees herself as like, well, I'd rather be in good company with them. Um, than these Johnny come lately biblical <laughs> critics who <laughs> who are saying that they aren't the same person. Now, you know, now we we do think yes, they probably were different people. Um, but you know, she's she's not alone in that. There's a long artistic tradition, so I'm not bothered by it. I think For I sure. would make the same choice um, today, but um, I'm not bothered by it. I think she explains herself well, and that's one of the. The great things about this new edition um, is I'm able to explain some of that. So yes. in the side columns, you know, there's a little excerpts from her letters or um, in my introduction, sometimes I have explained at a little greater length 
um, something like that. So, cause that's something when I read it the first time, I was like, what is she doing? Everybody uh-huh. knows. And then I was like, Oh yeah, I didn't know the historical context. So seeing that, you know, she was aware, she knew what she was choosing. Um, we don't have to agree with it, but at least, you know, she wasn't stupid. Right. Well, I, I, I wasn't there either. So it's just yeah. very, it, it's, it's, then that's exactly the same reaction I had. And then reading your annotations gave me the same sort of comfort, like, well, what she's doing makes sense and she's making it for good choices. And, mm-hmm. you know, why, why not? She, I was, she also surprised me by adding a Mary, which is the wife of Cleopas. Every time those two apostles on the way to Emmaus have been portrayed that I have seen, they've been two men. And right. in this one, it's Cleopas and his wife, Mary. And there's no, I went back to, I had to go back to the gospel and say like, Oh yeah, that's true. There's no reason why this isn't a woman for some reason, uh, mm-hmm. you know, probably because of our own biases and so on. I always assumed it was two guys. Right. Yeah. Sayers, you know, she's she's aware. There was actually a letter that she wrote to James Welch and said when she was sort of turning in the script for the final play um, and saying, you'll see that I have I have done this. I've made the companion of, of Cleophas, his wife. Um, because Mary Cleophas does appear in the gospels, um, elsewhere. She's, we know she's at, she's listed as being there at the foot of the cross and among the women that goes to the tomb. So, um, it's maybe again, and you know, all these Marys, she, (laughs) she is like, well, why couldn't this be, you know? Um, and so, and James Welch said, yeah, sure. I mean, one of her commentaries sort of proposed it, like perhaps it was Mary Cleophas. Mm -hmm. And so, she runs with that again for kind of dramatic flair, but it does make a very enjoyable scene where the two of them are, you know, have come back to the disciples in the upper room and they're like, Oh, we've seen the Lord. And he explained everything about him from the scriptures, but they keep, you know, they keep saying like, Oh, did we, you know, did we even get a good look at him husband? Like, (laughs) no, I don't think we did. Like, and so it's sort of like, you can really picture a couple um, giving that kind of report, you know, yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, that yeah, and I like that because even if you don't agree with it, it brings you back to the scripture to go back and see like what did I read exactly. It's a very, mm-hmm. it's very edifying in any case, you know. Yeah. So, um, mm-hmm. Did you want to say something about Baruch? I, you met, you mentioned him uh, a few minutes ago, and he's super interesting as well. He is. So um, Baruch is a, a zealot character. Um, which is very helpful. So he he serves a couple purposes, one of which is just to show her audience, you know, what these zealots were like, what they were doing, what they cared about. Um, you know, in the New Testament, it mentions the zealots. Um, we have um, Simon the Zealot is one of the one of the um, disciples of Jesus, but um, they never really say like what what they believed or what they did. What did it mean to be a zealot? And so she uses this character named Baruch, um, who's sort of a, an organizer of a group of zealots um, who are opposed to the Roman occupation. Um, and so she sort of introduces him, but he becomes very important in um, the storyline of Judas. Mm-hmm. So um, we we see him as a kind of man of action who's plain spoken and, you know, he does his things. And then Judas is um, a very kind of intellectual character. So when you bring these two together, Baruch has a way of of kind of disarming Judas's intelligence and like implanting <laughs> kind of doubts, you know. So he's the first one to, that kind of makes Judas kind of push back on some of the things that that Jesus said. Um and Baruch would actually, he he's trying to use Judas to to get to know Jesus because he thinks Jesus would be a perfect kind of figurehead to the movement. Yeah. You know, if we could just get a figurehead, we can, you know, I'll worry about getting the, the troops to march behind him and then we'll we'll make an attempt to overthrow Roman rule. Um, and Judas, you know, is like, no, no, Jesus isn't like that. Um, and Baruch kind of feels like, well, you know, everybody has their price kind of a guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um so, but he keeps appearing and he, he has, he becomes this kind of devil on Judas's shoulder that makes him kind of doubt Jesus. Um, and so that really becomes Judas's problem is that he's actually kind of too intelligent and he tends to um, trust in his own ability to reason and 
kind of guess what's about to happen or what Jesus is about to do or guess what it means uh, when Jesus does something or doesn't do something. Um, and that begins to really get in his way and he begins to trust himself. So he, he is not able to trust Jesus, yeah. um, which is his downfall. So it's a, a really interesting characterization um, of Judas that hadn't really been done before. Um, we of course see the, the kind of um, a lot of passion plays have Judas as this like pure criminal who's kind of like twisting his mustache or something, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, that's sort of like historically yeah. often like he's just in it for the money or something. And Sayers just wasn't satisfied with that. Yeah. She thought I've got to do, I've really got to get my head around it. Like why, why would Jesus even have him as a disciple if he knew that Judas um, was, you know, just a pure baddie, you yeah. know, there had to be something about him that he too had free will. And, uh, you know, he could have, so Sarah sees him as like, he could have been the best disciple because he was the most intelligent. He was the one more than the others who often catches what Jesus means about mm-hmm. the kingdom and about the, the importance of, of, you know, suffering. Um, and it's not just about, you know, overthrowing the Romans that Jesus has a different kind of kingdom in mind. Um, yeah. you know, he, he sort of colors that in his own way, but you know, more than some of the others. And the other disciples are like, oh, Judas, you know, you understand it. You, you, you know, they treat him like the, the smart one in the group. Right. Right. Um, right. So she and, reflects that through, through the way the others treat him. Oh, we are poor fishermen, but you, Judas, you, you, you grasp to what's happening. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And she says and, that the, the worst corruption is the corruption of the best man, right? The, yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So that's, that's exactly what's going on there. He, like he could have been. Absolutely the best. He could have been the Apostle Paul. Who um, also was, right? Who also was the worst turned the best. <laughs> no, this is the best mm-hmm. turned the worst, yeah. Yeah, right. And so, you know, that in a sense that maybe the Apostle Paul it kind of takes the place of, of Judas. Um, and, you know, this very intelligent character. But it really in the Gospels, we have so little evidence. But Sayers makes a dramatic choice uh-huh. um, and develops it. And I think it's very interesting. Um and then the the final scene between Judas and Baruch, just uh-huh. before Judas goes to return the silver and commit suicide, um, Baruch really he like he just has this annoying way of knowing what Judas is is thinking all throughout the plays, um, but uh, he serves an important point because uh, like a, has a real purpose in the plays because he allows Judas to like verbalize what he's thinking with things that. Judas doesn't even tell Jesus, doesn't tell the other disciples, but he, he will tell Baruch because Baruch can kind of guess. So Baruch, you know, is giving him a hard time. And this final scene is like, well, why aren't you up there before the Sanhedrin? You know, you, Mm -hmm. you had this, this beautiful uh, view of suffering of how great it was and how necessary it was, but here you are, why aren't you defending your master? And, and then, oh, I think, you know, somebody betrayed him. Was it you, Judas? You know, and then Judas is like, no. And he like sees himself truly for the first time through Baruch's eyes. So even though Baruch is totally made up character, he serves a really important purpose. Right. And she inserts this sort of tragic misunderstanding which mm-hmm. like so many, so many novels is like the one letter that never got delivered, you know, if only yeah. and that is that Judas sees Jesus riding in on the ass's colt and thinks he's leading a rebellion. But Baruch had made it that he also could have taken a war horse, but he chose the the donkey and mm-hmm. and Judas misreads it entirely. And I think I think Baruch did it with sincerity. So I don't think anybody's lying to anybody or was it a trap? Yeah, I, I I think you're right. So I don't I don't think Baruch was was trying to trap anyone. I think Judas made a kind of honest mistake, but mm. of course he had had this growing mistrust of Jesus. So yeah. there's no way at that point that he he could have said like, oh, I just trust him. He must know what he's doing. He's yeah. like, oh, he is he is now in league with Baruch, and he didn't tell us, and he's gonna you know everything's gonna fall apart, and it's not the way I imagined it was going to happen. Yeah. Um, I was in in our earlier email. I was comparing this Judas to um, the the Scorsese one in Last Temptation of Christ, who's sort of playing mm-hmm. a redeeming role by provo- by providing the way in which Jesus can sacrifice himself. Or the one in Jesus Christ Superstar, who's kind of the main character. And mm-hmm. you you replied that you thought the Judas in the Chosen, the the new sort of 
this new series that we've had the last couple of years was was interesting. Do you want to say a bit about that? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I mean, let me let me first say what you what you just said about the 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 first piece was um, from Last Temptation is that that is a that's what Sayers puts in the mouth of her Caiaphas to kind of soothe Judas. Yeah. Like, cause Judas is saying to him, I mean, it's almost, it's very kind of childish. And he's like, Oh, if only Jesus had lived up to my understanding <laughs> of the Messiah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I believed him. I, you know, he could have, you know, he, I believed he was the Messiah if he had only, you know, lived into it. And, and uh, Caiaphas says like, Oh, well, you know, the best thing you can do for your friend is actually to let him die now so that people will remember him for the good things that he did and said, you know, his, his reputation will be tarnished. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, and Judas kind of falls for that. Like, yes, I'm helping Jesus be the Messiah. He, he, um, he, he knew he needed to be at his best moment, you know? Yeah. Um, So there is a, there's a connection there. Yeah. Um, You know, I I think we haven't quite seen enough of Judas in the chosen to really know, um, his full characterization, but I think, you know, it's a, it's an interesting comparison because this Judas is a little more practical in the chosen. Um, It's kind of a a swindler, isn't he? Or a a con con artist kind of a guy. Right. Yeah. But it it seems like he's not necessarily the smart one, you know, in, in the people that are wanting to con him either, you know, like they're, he's sort of learning, learning the tricks of the trade. Um, But uh, not not necessarily the mastermind behind it. So uh, maybe he will kind of get there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. There's very interesting differences. Like the, the treatment of Matthew is completely different. Um, and it just shows the variety of, of what happens when it's dramatized. Mm-hmm. You know, when we start with just the words of scripture, they, you know, you have to, a, a real person is, if a person is going to be portraying them, you have to make some choices somewhere. So Sayers has Matthew be, um, a kind of, uh, East end London Cockney and, um, worldly wise kind of, kind of man who, uh, you know, knows all the tricks and, um, but just realizes like the real goodness in who Jesus is and that in responds to the love and respect that Jesus gives him. And that's why he follows him and leaves, mm-hmm. leaves everything behind, um, in the chosen, um, you know, he's very different. He's very quiet and um, uh, seems, I mean, maybe even portray on the, on the spectrum. There's been on the autistic spectrum. There's been some discussions about oh. that. Um, and in terms of, you know, uh, he has, um, yeah, I mean, just different things about yeah. his behavior, which is he's just quieter. But, um, you know, but he's he's the one scribing what Jesus is saying, you know, like for the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is like, Matthew, write this down, which is almost a little too much. Yeah, that's very funny. Um, it's like, is that actually what we believe about how, how um, yeah. you know, how the, the scriptures are inspired? No, it's a little, little much. Um, but, uh, you know, it wasn't like Jesus was asking them necessarily to write everything down, but... Um, I remember I haven't seen very much of The Chosen and I watched more of it just um, this morning because I knew uh, I could ask you about it. But is Mm -hmm. I think I did see that episode where Jesus finds Matthew and Matthew's kind of in a cage as a tax collector, like for his own, like, you know, like in a a bank window. And I Mm -hmm. I really like that image that, you know, he's he's the rich, powerful guy, but he's living in a cage (laughs) and he comes and he comes out. Right. And that's yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's true. Yeah, and and they, I think in the chosen, they also show well how kind of isolated socially yes, right. he was. You know, people not wanting to associate with him and that kind of thing. And um, sorry, so yeah. I was going to say that I, um, so when I was watching the the Judah scenes about where he sort of hustles this guy out of this land, totally the, I, I had I had the same feeling that I think people who complained to Dorothy Sayers had, where they would say like, "Well, this I can't be right," because they kept doing all of these anachronistic things where. Um, he wanted to sell tombs to the middle class. I was like, nobody talked about middle class before the 19th century. You can't have, oh. you know, or he's <laughs> saying like, oh, but he's, he's, if you, if you have the Sermon on the Mount on your mountain, then, you know, you can brand your products and you have like, and there was all these like advertising sl- slogans. And I thought like, uh-huh. I am exactly the same guy who a hundred years ago would have complained about 
<laughs> Dorothy Sayers <laughs> version. Like, how dare you? And I was like, this, you know, and then this sort of American version of it where they just mix in all these Americanisms into the gospel. And I was having mm -hmm. that same thing. I was like, I'm, I'm that guy. I'm, I'm that legalistic uh, complainer uh, writing yeah. to the BBC that, that uh, Miss Sayers is, is messing everything up. Yeah. Well, and there was there was plenty of correspondence yeah. about these plays. Um, as I mentioned that there, you know, there was, um, you know, a real kind of panic before there were people because they, they had a press release, um, a press conference um, and in December 1941, just before they started the series on the air. And uh, Sayers read a few lines and it happened to be the part um, Matthew was in one of those scenes. And so he uses kind of Cockney slang. And so then they, people freaked out and are like, oh, and there's other headlines like, you know, <laughs> life of Christ plays in U.S. slang. Yeah. They like to blame anything um, language wise on Americans. And uh, Colonial. so, you know, Colonial. people, it wasn't just like, oh, no, these aren't going to be good. Like people wrote and were like desperate. Like I had this one one letter that's like, nine out of 10 mothers in our village beg and plead that you won't put this terrible thing on the air. And uh, I mean, it seems almost silly now, but people took it very seriously. They, they felt like were worried that it was, it was going to be irreverent and, um, you know, not do justice. It was going to play fast and loose with the, with the gospels. Um, and, um, but once they actually got on the air and people heard them, um, they really loved them. And the, the letters of complaint settled down to more like the kind of thing you were saying, like, well, I didn't really like the way that was characterized or, um, you know, did you, have you ever thought about, you know, Ooh, yeah. you really seem to rely on John for that story. Did you know that in Matthew, you know, kind of um, people, you know, those kinds of things instead of the sort of desperate attempt to stop it. Um, and it actually, because of that controversy, there there probably was a much greater audience Mm -hmm. for the plays because people then were like oh well what's it gonna be you know what's this gonna be like and so originally they were you know um created for children but as as the controversy built up you know it really became you know all everybody of all ages were listening to these together and um so you actually see her writing adjust to that a little bit the first couple of plays have child characters in them so it's like they're sort of seeing the story through Yes. yes, those kids but, are hilarious. <laughs> yeah. like, John is a better name than Zacharias. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And kids, kids, um, you know, they did connect to that. And the first play, you know, when the they're they're realizing that these three fancy kings are gonna come visit the baby Jesus, yeah. and the the you know, the the kind of hostess that that they're staying with says, Oh, you know, let me get a fresh bib. For baby Jesus. And that's something specifically yeah. that, um, you know, a, a friend of Sayers who had some evacuee children staying with her um, said that they were just fascinated by that because it made Jesus seem like a real baby. Right. Like, oh, babies spit up and get messy and they need fresh bibs. Um, and Jesus was a real baby. Right. Wow. Like it, it really made it come alive to them for the first time. Right. I remember my mom telling me like none of these nativities where Jesus is in the manger are correct. You got to find the one where Mary is holding her newborn baby in her arms. And she finally found that one. And that's the one she has. And now that I'm a parent, I'm like, yeah, nobody sits there by the manger looking, adoring their child sitting in the manger. Every, yeah. every newborn child is held. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. So, you know, so it's full of things that Sayers is aware of. She's trying to make connections to her audience that's why you have things like, you know, uh, Jesus has a, a golden beard, which is a <laughs> silly thing, yeah. which she does explain in a letter because someone, of course, calls her on it. Like, don't you know, Jesus had black hair. And she writes back, well, you're probably right. But I was thinking about, you know, all these classic paintings of mm -hmm. Jesus. Um, and it just makes a nice shorthand um, for me, you know, for the, for the listeners to just get a kind of a quick picture of Jesus. And then, you know, she even has Mary Magdalene at one point talk about the, the red braids of her hair. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and, you know, of course that's, that's taken from, uh, you know, again, classic paintings of the crucifixion. There's Mary Magdalene there with her flowing red hair at the foot of the cross. So, um, 
And Sayers is trying to kind of just make those connections for people. Yeah. Right. I remember there was some, uh, some, I can't remember where, but there was a, a radio story about a nun in the fifties or sixties who was teaching in a, in a school um, in America with, with all the kids were black. And so she's like, well, we need all the crucifixes to have a black Jesus. And somebody said like, well, Jesus mm-hmm. was black. I was like, well, why not? You certainly didn't have, you know, if you didn't have golden hair, he maybe didn't have black skin, but why don't you have Jesus resemble the people who he's talking to? And I, mm-hmm. I always thought like that was such a good argument, especially for those school kids. To... Yeah. 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 That's right. I mean, there's kind of, you know, that's two schools of thought, like it, you know, really thinking about a kind of truly and fully enculturated kind mm-hmm. of Jesus in order to help people connect to him. And then the kind of, you know, historic realism. Um, and, you know, as we see, even just saying, looking at, you know, Sayers, um, view of the gospels. And then if we just, you know, say the chosen, which people might be used to, you know, it's, it's each of them are a mix in the different way between the gospel and the culture that the story is being told to. That's so totally, totally. Yeah. And it gets yeah. people talking about it and it gets people thinking about it. And the m- amount of people who love the chosen, um, that's, that's, that's great. Our problem isn't that there's too many inaccuracies is it's that not enough people are talking about it. And somebody, yeah. I forget who said this too, is like, how many kids know the four evangelists compared to how many kids know the four houses of Hogwarts? Yeah, <laughs> it's true. It's a lot more kids know can tell you the <laughs> houses of Hogwarts than can tell you the evangelists. So, oh, it's good, true. So good on them. Good on Dorothy Sayers and whoever made the chosen, um, whose name is escaping me. It's. Uh... Mm-hmm. Would you Would you say a little bit more about this edition before before we stop? Sure, absolutely. So this new edition, uh, it's a Wade annotated edition. So the Marion E. Wade Center is an archive that's on the campus of Wheaton College in Illinois. Um, And they actually hold the greatest amount of of materials related to Sayers. So they have like 34,000 of her letters there. And so it was the place where I did most of my research or a lot of my research. Um, And so I'm actually able to pull, since I coordinated with them, I was able to, you know, pull things from their collection to highlight in this edition. So, you know, excerpts from letters, excerpts from some of her other works. Um, I also, uh, a real great feature is that I track all of the Bible references. So not only like which gospel is this particular story to, but she often makes these little side notes or, or she'll even combine uh, details from different gospels. And so I track that in the footnotes and then there's side notes that have all these other interesting things. So um, it's a great just kind of reader's edition. If you want to really dig into the background and what she was doing again, the kind of, the kind of energy to go mm-hmm. back to that mind of the maker Trinity, mm-hmm. the energy of what, what is going into the process of making the plays. Um, but also I'll say that these plays are, are pretty commonly read in classical schools. So this would be a fabulous teacher's edition um, that would Excellent. give the, the teacher, you know, all the background knowledge and could maybe answer a lot of the questions that might come up in, in class discussion as well. So, um, yeah, it's a, I, hope, it's a, I hope people really dig into it and enjoy it. Yeah. It's very accessible. It's very beautiful. And it's just, it's just been a delight to spend some time with this excellent edition of yours. So yeah, thank well, good. you. For thank that. you. And thank you, especially for talking with me today about it. Mm-hmm. Would yeah, you, my, my pleasure. Yeah. Would you like to say a blessing for our listeners and their families? I would. I'll, I'll just say a quick prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Lord, thank you so much for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to save us and to show us who God is in the flesh, um, that we might be able to see you and have a relationship with you. Bless anybody who reads uh, The Man Born to be King, that they might experience Christ in a new way. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Nails, spear shall pierce him through the cross. Be born for me, for you. And hail, hail the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. Chris Udinitz and Catherine Ware recorded this conversation, episode 47, on February 15, 2023. That was the feast day of Saints Jovita and Faustinus, who were beheaded by the Emperor Hadrian in the year 120 for preaching the gospel. I hope to publish this episode on Thursday, April 6, 2023, which is Holy Thursday. 
Our music is from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band. Their website is www.gscoasterband.com. Our logo, the image of the dog, is from a stained glass window at the Monastery of Santo Domingo de Silos in Spain. comes from the Dominican Friars of England, Scotland, and Wales from www.english.op.org. I'm Chris Odinitz. I thank you for listening. Please write me, if you wish, at almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. I've answered every letter. I'll talk to you next week. Oh, and happy Easter. And in addition, in two weeks, Jonathan Fessenden and I will be discussing two movies, The Mission and A Man for All Season. They're both wonderful, and maybe you'd like to watch them or watch them again between now and then. Bye, everybody, and happy Easter. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing.